So we're talking about family today. And there's something about family that's different than any other connection, relationship, association in the world. That, uh, you know, it's, it's flesh and blood. You, you share your sort of genetic makeup with your family. And you have the, just the common stamp of life that you share. Even if you don't get along with your family, even if there's brokenness in relationship, there's that commonality of family that just is is uh, just stays with you. And different families are known for different characteristics. Each family has its unique stamp. My wife's family, they're tall. So to be a Jackson is to be tall. Her dad, six feet nine. Uh, her aunt, six feet tall. Six foot, beautiful six foot women inside of the family. Tall women everywhere. The cousins, six feet eight, six feet nine. One played professional basketball in Europe. They're all very tall. My wife doesn't share that trait and say, well, what happened to you? But, she, but to be a Jackson, oh, you have the height thing. Even though she herself doesn't have the height thing, she shares that stamp. Does that make sense? Even without the height. Uh, for my family, I remember, and it was strange to me, and it stuck out to me as a child. I was at the dentist, and the hygienist had finished her work, and the dentist came in, and he said, he said oh, a Paul. Pauls have great teeth. Like, really? And I didn't. So I felt, you know, I had some cavities and stuff, and it was less about my genetics and more about my whatever. So the, it, Paul's have great teeth. I'm like, I didn't know, because all my cousins, we had a lot of our cousins in town, and they all went to the same dentist, and this was just sort of, he identified the stamp was, uh, was teeth. Uh, uh, the other thing for my family to be a Paul was also to uh, have a high value of, of education, particularly public education. So my dad was a school principal in town, my mother was a school teacher, my aunt was a teacher, my uncle, my sister teaches at the public school, my cousins work at the school. There's just a lot of Pauls in the school. So when we came up, it was a whole mess of cousins all about the same age. It seemed like every year through the school and the high school, there was always Pauls coming through and said, oh, you're a Paul, you know, education. And that was a good, that was kind of a good association. Um, some families are known to be good athletes, some are wealthy, some are good-looking, like your family. Um, <laughs> some are faith-filled family. There's all these different stamps that, that go along with being part of a family. Here in this scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We are part of God's family. And that family has its own stamp on it. The, the one that we are born with, the genetic one, is the Holy Spirit of God. That you are stamped with the Spirit. You are sealed with God's Spirit. That distinguishes us as members of this family. And it also means we have this amazing inheritance in the future for us. Because we're part of this family. We, have, we are heirs to God's kingdom. And that's exciting. It also means that there are characteristics that are common to our family. The, the one that's stamped on us is, is love. We are to be known by our love for God and our love for one another. It also means you have a lot of brothers and sisters. We've got this big, crazy family that we are to navigate uh, life with here on earth. This is our family. This is our new family. This is who we are as a church, a spiritual family. We are not born into that family, but we are reborn into that family. We are God's children, sons and daughters. 
For some people, this concept is difficult. We've been looking at a number of images of what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be the church? For some people, this is a tough one. Usually it's because of uh, their family of origin. They had perhaps a negative or traumatic experience of family or of fatherhood. Um, For others, this is spiritually profound. This is such a beautiful and powerful image. And wherever you are on that spectrum, um, my, my hope is that we would sort of grow in our understanding of what this means today. When, when you were growing up and you thought about your family, you thought about the other families in your community, there were times, I, I know I felt this way, you may have, where you kind of wanted to be part of someone else's family. Like, oh, that family does such cool stuff. You know, they have such a, a cool house, or they do cool vacations, or they're so good at sports. I wish I was one of that family so I could be good at sports. And um, When we think about our spiritual family, people don't want to be part of our spiritual family. We're not one of those fam. We're not the cool family. Uh, increasingly so. Somebody sent me some research this week I was looking at. It was uh, a recent survey. 39%, almost 40% of Americans believe that the church, the spiritual family, will do more harm than good in their life. Not just that they don't want it, but that it would harm them if they were part of our family. So we are not the popular family. But again, it's not our job to, uh, to try to be popular Our job is to be a family. Our job is to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Our job is to love excellently, just be God's people, and and not uh, worry, but we just not worry about what other people think of us. Yet at the same time, as as people come to know the beauty of this family, they can come to know the beauty of our Father. And so so we, we, we need to... Let the truth of being God's family sink deep to us. And today I want to focus on three things. Because it's not just a theoretical thing. It becomes actually very practical. The more we remind ourselves who we are, that we are a people, that we are the body of Christ, that we are a spiritual family, that we are these things, that it produces a way of life in us. Three things I want to focus on. It produces hope. It produces love, and it produces assurance in our lives. Um, Hope is good because we live in a chaotic world, and there's a lot of hopelessness, and the world is very unpredictable. But our faith produces a hope that our future is good and certain. Uh, Love produced in us, not surface love, but deep love that we can use to uh, impact the world around us. And assurance, when we have doubts about God or doubts about ourselves, that we can have deep assurance. If you don't need hope, and love, and deep assurance of your faith, then this message is not for you. And you don't need, you could leave if you like, um, discreetly, but if you're like me, I need hope. I need to increase my love. I need to be certain of my faith. And if you're anything like me, then this is an important message. And I would guess this is an important message for every one of us today. Let's, uh, Let's pray as we approach it. So, Father, as we think of you and your love for us, and that you've invited us, and you've brought us into your family. We acknowledge, we, we thank you for it. We thank you for your love that made that happen. We thank you for who we are, and we need your wisdom, Heavenly Father. And as we look at your word, I pray that your spirit would just be very active in teaching us as we consider your truth and your word and, and who you are and who we are. So Lord, this time is yours. Use it as you desire. Be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at a passage of Scripture that comes from 
uh, it's, the, it's what we call First John, or the first epistle of John that we have. And John was Jesus' disciple. He was a very close disciple of Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He's writing in the first century, we think from Ephesus, to, and he's writing not to one church, but he's writing general letters to a number of churches. So these letters are not as specific, but they do, uh, they do have a purpose, and he's writing to encourage these believers to remind them who they are, to help them to battle against sin and temptation, uh, to, to really just love excellently, and to be certain of their faith. And that's, uh, so this is a good letter for us today. So I want to look at three aspects that our status, or three things that our status as children of God produce in us. And the first is hope. Produces hope. Look at verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, and the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This is a hope that we have, that we are God's children, that does not depend on what people think of us. It doesn't depend on how much, it doesn't depend on what somebody says to you, what they think about you and your faith, that this is a certain status as children. And Jesus, he warned his followers. He said, look, people who are not part of this family, people who rejected me, they're, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. If they didn't understand me, they're not going to understand you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. This is it's just reminding that, that, that it's not going to be fully understood. It's a reality even if the world can't see it clearly. Even if they think it's nonsense. Even if they think it's... Uh, somehow hurtful. And it's tough because sometimes people who are not people of faith, they look at us and they say, you know what, I want nothing to do with you. You people, you think you're so special. You think you have all this status with God and I don't and I'm somehow deficient. And you look at me and you think I lack something. And you think you're better than me. And that's so sad to me because that's not how I feel. I don't feel I'm more special to you. I don't think I did anything to deserve what God has given me. He's just lavished it on me. He just poured it out to me. And he just opened my heart to see it and respond to it. And I do believe people need Jesus. I believe you need Jesus. I, do I think something is lacking in you? Ah, no. But there's something there for you that you need. And so we, we always walk this line of, trying to offer something good without being people who are just seen as just condemning all people or other people around us. But for us, the good news is it doesn't matter. My hope is secure. And you can judge me for it. You can hate me for it. But I have a hope. So it's a hope that doesn't depend on the world. It's a hope that looks forward to a future destiny. Look at verse 2. Dear friends, now we are, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Look, I have a hope that is so firm and secure, even though I don't even know what it's going to fully look like someday. And the writers of the Bible, the apostles and the Old Testament prophets, they were fine not knowing everything. God had given them special revelation, special messages to communicate to God's people but to the world. But there were things the prophets didn't know. There's things, the, you know, the apostle John doesn't know. 
There's things we're confident in. There's things we're not fully sure of. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Um, now, he, skipping down, now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, or a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So, I know some things now, but I, it's, there's things I don't know, but we're living into it. But here's what we're confident of. That when that day comes, when all of God's redemptive work is done in my life, I am going to be like Jesus. Verse 2. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Or as scripture says in Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's our destiny to be like Jesus. One day, all of the rights and all of the benefits of being part of God's family, all that inheritance is going to be just shared, and we're going to know it and experience it. That's the future reality. The present reality is that God's spirit is stamped in me, that I can, be, that I can have this hope. And know that it's coming and that God's spirit is actually building me towards that. That I am being conformed towards Christ's likeness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So this is coming from God. He's doing a work in me and he's heading me towards this thing where I am going to be like Christ. We talk a lot about the future, eternity, when we die or when Christ returns, that we're going to be with Christ. And someone we love dies and we say, you know what, I'm sad they're gone, but they're with Jesus. And that is good, and we should celebrate that. But not only are we going to be with Jesus, we're going to be like Jesus. That all the good things that God has started in my life will be known in their fullness. And as we understand Jesus, you look at his character, and you look at his personality and his integrity and his wisdom and his power. He's the perfect person and we're going to be like Jesus in all my imperfections and all my sin and all the ways I struggle and all the stupid decisions I made. All that, I'm going to be like Jesus. Which is totally different than other people we admire. Other people we admire, famous people or neighbors or friends, you know, you really, you're just really impressed with them. You'd love to be just like them. And you get to know them better, and you see their faults. And you see how they really are. And you become a little disillusioned and uh, maybe annoyed with them. And you see the warts, and you see the failure. And the better you know someone, the more you know they're just, their imperfections. With Jesus, the more we know him, the more we read about his life, his teaching, his actions in the world, what he has done, we become more and more enamored with him. We want to be more and more like him in every way. And that is the work that God is doing. And this produces a hope in us. It is a hope that is a purifying hope. It's a hope that is... Uh, look at verse 3. This is a hope that purifies. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. I see his purity. I know that God is bringing me towards it. And now I can pursue that with my whole heart. I can... I can fight sin and temptation in my own life. I don't have to be stuck in my old way. I can, I can, I'm being transformed in this way and I can head that way. The, the world around us who, who 
may or may not understand this at all. There are many who think that we live obedient lives and we fight against sin and we try to do what is right and we gather as a spiritual family to earn God's favor. That, that if I do enough and if I'm good enough, then I will earn God's love and acceptance. That is not how this works. What we realize as God's children is that he has freely loved and accepted us. That he has done it all. As we sang, Jesus paid it all. Jesus made it happen. And because I've been so loved and accepted, then I obey. So I don't obey so that I am loved and accepted. I am loved and accepted, and therefore I obey. And it's a completely opposite system. But now, when we have this hope, we can, as, as Philippians says, press on towards that goal. We can press forward into it with all of our hearts. Because it's a hope that does something in us. So that's hope. So as children of God, it, it's producing hope. And it's a purifying hope. Secondly, our status as children of God produces love. It's not a surprise to us, but let's take a look at this. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. I'm just following on the back of the bulletin. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This, is, this type of love is not just an idea. It's about sacrifice as the essence of love. And this is the good news of Jesus. Again, Jesus paid it all. He sacrificed himself for us. Jesus came to this earth, perfect, holy. We are in this earth, spiritually dead, imperfect, unholy, sinful. He comes, and on the cross, he takes the punishment we deserve for our sin on himself. He sacrifices himself to give us his goodness. He takes it, and he defeats it. And he rises to new life, that we can have new life. That's the good news of Jesus. And we have this, he's done this for us, he's died for us, and it's not just, an, it's not just a, um, an image of love and an act of love that we can look at and admire. We do. We worship him for it, but it also becomes a pattern for us. It becomes a motivation for us that we also can lay, out our, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And that's a big love, but it's not always huge Sometimes it happens in small pieces. So love, loving action is sometimes small. Look at verse 17. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The, the, the idea here is that love isn't always just fully laying down your life and dying, but it can be lived out still sacrificially, but just by sharing your possessions, by having, by having and seeing somebody who doesn't have and sharing with them. It's not always some heroic act of, of dying. And the question here is, you know, if you see somebody in need and you have material possessions and you have no pity on them, you know, that if God's love is in you, then you'll be moved. And the word pity there is it's a kind of a weak word. The, the word is literally bowels. So the King James Version of the Bible, the old King James says, you know, if you see somebody in need and you shutteth up his bowels of compassion. It's actually a pretty accurate translation of the Greek. If there's something deep in our gut. When God's love is at work in our heart and you see somebody in need, and it just stirs in us. Because I have something and you don't, and I want to share with you. It, there's all kinds of ways that we can live this out. Giving your money away is a great way 
to show love to people in need. Now, in the first century, how churches did that and the way we do it today, it does look different, but in many ways, it's very much the same. We have a thing called the communion fund here at the church. People give money, and that money gets... Take that money and give it to people who need it. So people who have money give money and people need it. It's a very simple system. I get to administrate that fund. It's a, it's, it gives me great joy to support people in need in small but very tangible ways. But, uh, you know, beyond money, I mean, I see people who have shared rooms in their houses with people in need, people who have shared vehicles, people who have shared clothing. It's just, it's these small acts of love, sacrificial love, but small acts of love that truly live this out. And we do live it out in action. Verse, love is action, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, with action and in truth. You know, love isn't just about saying that you love people. I'm a Christian, I love all people, and I love this group, and I love that group, and that's great. And we should love groups, and the certain groups that, are, you know, that you might have a deeper heart for. But one commentator said this, it jumped out to me. He said, loving everyone in general can become an excuse for loving no one in particular. It's hard to love a group, to truly love a group in action. Again, you're going to be drawn towards certain groups. You know, you might be drawn towards refugees, or I have a heart for orphans, or I have a heart for special needs kids, or I have whatever your heart for the group is. And you can, you can bless a group. So let's say you have a heart for... A recovering addicts, so you make a donation to Teen Challenge, a financial donation. So you have tangibly loved and supported a group. That's good. Jesus loved groups. He looked over a whole city and he wept because he just knew that they needed peace so bad. He loved the groups, but he also went into that city and he touched individual lives and spoke to individuals and uh, demonstrated that love to, to the not just the group. You know, we can make, you make a gift to an organization. There's a lot, in a lot of ways, that's a very arm-distant kind of way to love somebody. But you should do it. It's not a bad way to love. But we also, how do, what, who are the addicts in my life who I'm walking with or who I've supported or who I'm praying for by name? And that that's, brings love. It drives it home. It's not just words and ideas, but it's action and in truth. And this is a good reminder of that. So we have great hope, and we have this... Uh, this love that is being produced because of our status as children. Lastly, our status as children of God produces assurance in us. Look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. The human heart is prone to doubt. Right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect relationship with God, and here's the serpent, the deceiver, saying, you know, God's trying to hold something back from you. God does not have your best interest in heart. And it's this doubt, doubting God's goodness, doubting his love, that brings about sin in our lives from the very beginning. You know, God is not for you. God is, God is not does not have your best interest. And there's lots of things that can cause that type of doubt. Certainly tragedy, if you, a personal struggle or tragedy can cause us to doubt God's goodness. Our own guilt can cause us to doubt our status as God's children. So, you, you know, I don't feel like God's child because I'm so guilty and I sin and struggle. 
in our heart, in verse 20 here, our hearts condemn us. So we do have doubts and we have disbeliefs, but here's the good news. God can handle that. He can, he can get along okay with your doubts. He, God does not need you to approve of all that he allows to happen in the world. It's the same thing with my children. My children do not approve of every boundary I put in their life. They may not understand why I do all that I do as a father, but I never, ever want them to doubt my love for them. So you can doubt what I allow and what I don't allow in my house, but you'll never doubt my love. God has given us his Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says that God's Spirit testifies, is a witness to our spirit that we are God's children. So no matter how you doubt God or how you doubt yourself, that God's spirit is there to assure us, yes, you are God's child. Here in, in 1 John chapter 3, it's not printed, but verse 24 says, this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. We can have great confidence that our do- our, we can have these doubts and we can have even anger towards God and at the same time know that we are secure as his children. And quite honestly, God knows everything, as we're reminded here. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Just pray through Psalm 139. Asking God to search me, search my heart, Lord. Show me my own heart. I mean, God knows your own heart better than you know your heart. And he knows what's right, he knows what's good, and you're his child and he loves you. That's producing assurance in you. So here we have our status as children of God. We have hope. We have love and we have assurance. I hope there's something there that resonates with you because this is who you are if you put your faith in Jesus. And remind yourself of that. Tomorrow, when uh, you know, don't forget who you are and whose you are because your doubts will creep in or people will not understand it or you, you'd be inclined to hold on to what you have and not sacrifice it. Remember who you are. You're going to see needs all around you. You can share with people in need. It's not always material. A lot of the poverty we see in our world is not necessarily material poverty, but people are relationally poor and spiritually poor. We can just give of our time and our presence and our listening ear and to pray for people. Pray for people. Pray with people. Hey, can I pray for you? We are born into a family um, where we are so loved and accepted and, and we have this beautiful future, inheritance, all these things. This same writer, John, the disciple, he said in his, his gospel account of Jesus' life, he said, to all who received him, to all who believed in him, he gave the right to be children of God. It all starts with putting your faith in him. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, I'm not sure I'm in this family. I'm not sure I've actually received it. I'm not sure that I've experienced this stamp of God's spirit. I want to just give you an opportunity right now to pray. So if you just bow your heads with me and you could pray something like this. Just say, God, I want to be your child. I want to be part of your family. Receive me as your child. And I thank you for Jesus that he came and sacrificed for me, that I might be forgiven and be brought into your family, that I might have new life, that I might receive your Holy Spirit. Be my loving Father. Help me to grow. Help me to know what that means. Help me to be part of it. Thank you for this family of faith. 
to walk with through it. Thank you for your deep love. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's your heart this morning and you've, you are praying to enter into that family, would you please tell me about that or come forward at the end and uh, tell our prayer partners we would love to, um, to celebrate with you being part of God's family in that way. Amen.